Welcome to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of First Methodist Church in Opelika. We'd love for you to join us for worship each Sunday at 9 or 10.30 a.m. To learn more about First Methodist, visit us online at firstopelika.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at First Opelika. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love for you to join us. Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Romans. Uh, This morning we are going to begin a new uh, series working through uh, one chapter of the Bible for several weeks, Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to open it up. If you don't have it, I'm going to invite you to bring it back the next couple weeks because my hope uh, is that in the next uh, couple weeks that we will take this text, this one chapter of Scripture, which is one of the most important texts of Scripture, uh, and that we will try and understand it in an in-depth way so that you will know the truth of God's Word and what it has to say uh, to your life. Reader's Digest, uh, when they said that if they were going to compile an abridged version of the Bible, uh, said that they would only put two books from the New Testament in it, they were, if they were going to have five, chap, five books, and that Romans was one of them. And so of all the chapters in the book of Romans, chapter 8 uh, is one of the most important, uh, and we need to understand it well, so that's what we're going to turn our attention to over the next few weeks. This morning I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have your Bible with you, I invite you to grab one off the hymnal shelf in front of you or to open up your phone, and we'll have the words on the screen. Out of reverence for the Lord and for His Word, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. As we listen now together for the word of the Lord. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. 
But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it? That if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from the dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me, please. Lord, in the silence, we invite you to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Meet us. Speak to us. Open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, to the reality of Jesus to the promise of your spirit at work in us. Come Holy Spirit and speak to us and transform us that we might know the life that you give, the beauty of a life surrendered to you, living empowered by your spirit for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you were uh, struggling to read along in your versions. I was reading from the message. Uh, Paul is so dense and thick in his writing uh, that my hope is that we would be able to understand it a little bit better from a more modern translation. I want to give you a heads up that at the end of my message this morning, I'm going to give you a chance uh, to surrender your life to Jesus, to commit yourself to him in a new way. Uh, to pledge your loyalty to him, to uh, drive the stake in the ground, uh, maybe in a deeper and new way. And so just as you listen this morning, no matter who you are or where you are, no matter what your story is, just invite you to allow God to stir in your heart uh, that you might hear his truth and his invitation and feel his love drawing towards you. In 1989, Stephen Covey released his groundbreaking book uh, that he had pieced together really from his own experience of his life and from what he had been through his own. It was called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I bet some of you in your work life or your school life or your uh, education world read it. And if you had to peruse the list of the seven habits that Covey came up with, most of it, when you look at it and you kind of think about it, seems like common sense. But there was something about the way that he pieced all of it together and summarizing how all the different things had an impact. And if you would begin to focus on these seven things, that it would really change your life when it comes to productivity and efficiency. One of the habits that Covey envisions and encourages people to practice is begin with the end in mind. You may hear that and wonder what he's talking about, but the truth is it's something that you probably practice in your life in lots of ways and may not even realize it. I feel quite sure that almost every single time when you get in your car and begin to go somewhere, you have in fact begun with the end in mind. 
Uh, it is rare that you would get in your car and just aimlessly drive around unless you were planning to do that, which is beginning with the end in mind. That when you get in your car and you begin to think about where you want to go, you know where you're going. You know what it will look like when you arrive at the grocery store, at your destination, or at the city that you hope to go to. You don't get in and just hope you'll end up there. You think about what the end result will look like and work to make that happen. Subconsciously, you do it in all kinds of ways. I bet if you're planning your child or your grandchild's birthday party, you don't even realize you're doing it, but you begin to think, what will the event look like? How much time will you spend doing different things? What do you need to do to make sure that it's success? If you're a student, as you approach the end of the year, as you're preparing for a big test at some level, you're thinking about, what do I need to do to accomplish what will be asked for on the test? You know how to prepare, and you think about what it'll look like to be fully ready for what you'll face. Beginning with the end in mind brings clarity and focus that would otherwise be absent, having even a a rough sense, a, a general idea of what the outcome or the product or the destination will look like, allows you to focus on the needed things, ignore the unneeded things, and increase the chances of attaining the goal that you are setting before you. The benefits of beginning with the end in mind are equally applicable to grasping the life that God gives and the desires of what God wants to do in your life. What's amazing is that throughout Scripture, over and over again, we see places where God seems to share a snapshot of what He desires for you and me and for the world around us. This morning, as we begin a study of Romans 8, we get another one of those peaks into the outcome that God intends. As we begin with the end in mind, as it's related to our life in Christ, it will change everything about what we focus on and what we do. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the book of Romans is one of the richest and most complete books in the Bible. It is thorough and uh, complete in the way that it deals with sin and our need for a Savior and salvation and what it would look like for us to be in Christ. Uh, And in some ways, it's unfair to begin a sermon series in chapter 8. Uh, Because there is so much material in the book of Romans, and it is so dense, and Paul unpacks so many different layers, that to jump in in the book of uh, Romans in the middle of chapter 8 is a little bit of spiritual malpractice. Because we could probably spend a year working our way up to Romans 8, digging into everything else. But I'm going to try, and as we go through this chapter, give you a backstory on what Paul has talked about to help us understand this crucial piece of the book that he comes to. If you were to read up to this point in the book of Romans, beginning at the beginning, uh, essentially you would be really depressed by the time you got to Romans 8. Because up to this point, Paul has primarily dealt with incredibly heavy and weighty topics. He dove deep into sin. Uh, That sounds fun. Uh, He dove deep into sin and the curse that humanity finds itself under being separated from God. In the section right before our text, in the end of chapter 7, he reached kind of the ultimate level of despair because left on our own, what he realizes is that there is nothing that we can do. That there is nothing that you and I can do that even in our attempts to be super religious and to be extra moral and to follow all of the rules, nothing we can do will ultimately rectify the brokenness and the evil of our lives. That we are cursed with an issue of sin, not just the fact that we commit sins, but that this deeper kind of curse that we all have of this sin presence in our lives and in the world around us. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot overcome it on our own. 
Over the course of the final chapters of Romans, Paul will go into great detail about how to live with this new hope that he's describing. But before he dives in to that, he turns the page by beginning with the end in mind. He does exactly what Stephen Covey would recommend in his 1989 book in rule number two, in habit number two, he paints a picture of what the end result looks like, of what the outcome will be. Because as we know, when we have clarity about the outcome, it will help us as we move towards that goal. In response to all the questions and struggles in the first chapters of the book, Paul offers this victorious declaration for how they will triumph the hopelessness of sin and brokenness in the world? The answer is simple. It comes down to one word. It's the Sunday school answer that every kid would think, but it's true. The answer is Jesus. The work of Jesus through the Spirit gives freedom and life and peace. If you're taking notes, I'm going to say that again. If you're not taking notes, this might be the one thing that you would want to write down. The work of Christ through the Spirit gives freedom and life and peace. It sounds so simple, and yet the depths of it and the impact are so great. Paul starts with this bold and fairly famous declaration that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But more than just making the announcement as information, hoping that you'll know it and remember it if you have to pass a test, he backs up the statement with an explanation about why this is true. Because in our own human condition, of our own human effort, and of our attempts to make ourselves good enough on our own, there is condemnation. Uh, We deserve the curse and the consequences that come from our rejection of God. And whether you explicitly or implicitly do it, we all reject God. We can never do enough to satisfy the debt that sin makes in our own lives, but God did through Christ what we could never do on our own, and that he offered himself as the penalty for sin and death, and in Christ there is no condemnation. Jesus came as a sinless human and defeated the power of sin in our lives so that you and I can know the freedom, life, and peace that only He can give. When we are in Christ, it means that we have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, that we have entrusted ourselves to His death and resurrection, that we have entrusted ourselves to His actions as being sufficient for our penalty. And because of our entrusting ourselves to him, we are set free from sin, death, and ourselves. By the work and power of Jesus, we have been freed from the power of sin. And the power of sin has been replaced with the power of the Spirit. If you're taking notes, that's the next thing you want to make sure you write down. Is that the power of sin and the work of Jesus is replaced inside of us with the power of the Spirit. It's a transaction. It's a transformation. One is taken out and the other is put inside. When we are in Christ, we have a new status. We are now right with God. We have a new family. We are a part of God's family, of God's people. And we have a new future, a transformed eternal life. When we say that there is no condemnation when we're in Christ, it doesn't, though, mean that there is no sin. 
that there are no mistakes, or that we never do anything wrong. If you yourself have entrusted yourself to God's work through Jesus, then you undoubtedly know this reality. Rarely does receiving the gift that God offers in Jesus yield some miraculous life of sinlessness. We might think it does, but that right there proves it doesn't. When we put our trust in Christ, we receive the gift, but we still struggle with the things of this world that we want to trust, where we want to find our identity. In our confirmation class a few months ago, we watched a video that described this tension uh, between putting our faith in Christ and still struggling with the sins and mistakes of the non-Christian life. Uh, The video uh, told a fable of a boy uh, who lived in the woods and was raised by wolves. Uh, In the fable, uh, most of the the boy's mannerisms, uh, the way he ate and the way he viewed the world were all shaped by his being reared by the animals. You can imagine the scenario uh, of a child who had lived being raised by a pack of wolves, and yet one day in the fable he was discovered uh, by some humans. Immediately, as soon as this child was found, he was rescued from the woods instantaneously he was no longer a resident of the woods but it was an ongoing process and took years for him to learn to walk in the ways of humanity as opposed to what he had known this is our experience in Jesus in the moment of our entrusting ourselves to the work of Jesus we are rescued and justified immediately we are no longer residents of the woods Yet the work that Jesus did and our response to it are not only limited to forgiveness. It is not only about changing the location of where we are. It is not only about changing our status. Being set free isn't just about forgiveness. It's also about empowerment and transformation. Paul lays this out as he keeps writing that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is in us. I think that's the next point worth writing down, but now I'm just going to offering my opinion, which is worth what you paid for it. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's at work in us. There are so many little one-liners in this text that we could stop and investigate, but if you really ponder that this morning, that is astounding. That the same power that took a dead man buried and enclosed in a tomb and brought him back to life, that that power is present in us. That when we put our faith in Jesus, that when we entrust ourselves to him and the work that God does through him, that that spirit comes in us and allows us to engage with God's work, that we might live in the fullness of the life that God gives. But just like with the boy who was found in the woods, That transformation won't happen without our participation and our effort to choose and engage and live into the life in the Spirit as opposed to this life in the flesh, this life that we're accustomed to, the habits and customs and ways of the world that we had already known or that are so rampant around us. The contrast between the life that God calls us to, the life that God gives, and the ways of the world around us, and what we may have known before we were Christian, is stark. Life in the flesh is a life focused on one's self-determined desires and passions. 
It's all about determining what we want and what we like and then going after those things. It may include going after the distorted norms of the culture around us that are so rampantly infected by sin. Our flesh, our human way, chooses our self. We choose our self-comfort. We choose our self-focused desires. And all along, we try to convince ourselves that our desires and our comfort is equal to God's desires. That because we may be religious or because we know some things about God, that that automatically means that we must be doing what God wants. Engaging with the Spirit allows the Lord to work in our lives, to bring about transformation that will move us into the fullness of the life that God longs to give. Life focused on the flesh is essentially life focused on my will instead of thy will. It is continuing to live the ways of your former life without engaging the power and presence of Christ that is in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead that is in you to overcome and find victory from the life that is resistant and obstinate to God. There is no argument that says we can't do this or this isn't true. Uh, Part of what I think we want when we read this or we hear this is that it sounds so amazing, that it may be dense in particular, and there's lots of little words, and if you're reading out of the Pew Bible this morning or your own version, you're like, I'm not sure I can follow all the logic of this, but Paul lays it all out as a picture of the end in mind, of what it is that God longs to give, and there's a sense in us that wells up that says, we can't do that. That's not who we are. That's not true. That can't be all there is. And yet Paul doesn't offer anything else because there is no argument that this can't be so. This is his experience. This is the experience of those who have earnestly sought to surrender themselves and follow Jesus. The only response is that the work of Christ through the Spirit gives freedom, life, and peace. The work of Christ, through the Spirit, gives freedom, life, and peace. Paul begins with the end in mind. This is the life that God gives. For many of us, this is hard because of how we view the work of Christ. We tend to think that salvation or being in Christ is kind of like the barcode on something you get at the grocery store. For instance, if you go to the grocery store and you pick up a bag of potato chips, you carry them up there to the cash register and scan them over the computer, uh, the computer will tell you that those are potato chips. But if you were to cut the barcode off of those potato chips and take them and tape it to a bag of dog food and carry the bag of dog food up and scan it over the scanner, it would tell you it was a bag of potato chips. What is in the package would be irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what the barcode says. Often we take the approach that in salvation or in our life with God, that all God does is change the barcode on us. So we end up with a label that says we're saved or we're forgiven, but the contents of our lives are irrelevant. Whether or not we've been transformed doesn't really matter. The problem with that view is that it misses what Paul is showing us. 
that it misses the end in mind. It misses the end picture that Christianity isn't just about life after death. To assume that all that matters in this Christian journey is your eternal security misses the majority of what's intended for your Christian life. Paul wants to challenge that, so he begins with the end in mind. I love the way that Dallas Willard says it when he wonders whether all Jesus was up to was helping us make the cut or gain admission to heaven. It's nice to know that all will be well then, he says, but is there any good news for now? If I had to choose, I would rather have a car that runs than good insurance on one that doesn't. Can I not have both? This is the life that God gives. This is the end in mind. This is the whole picture of salvation and transformation. The work of Christ through the Spirit gives freedom and life and peace. In just a few minutes, we're going to come and share in this meal around the table. And this morning, as I told you, I want to give you a chance to respond. Because the response that God is looking for is surrender. The response that God is looking for is a person whose heart is yielded that says, God, you get to do what you want. I'll yield my whole life to you. Maybe for you that looks like you stop bargaining. You stop making trades or creating these contracts in your mind that says, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. Maybe it looks like you stop rationalizing or trying to convince yourself that the things that you want are exactly what God wants too. What it looks like is saying, I'm going to push all of my chips into the table and I'm going to yield all of who I am to him. Some of you may realize this morning that you may have never really had a relationship with Jesus that makes a difference. You may have said you know a lot about Jesus. You may have heard a lot of sermons. You may have spent a lot of time in church. But that doesn't mean you've surrendered. That doesn't mean you've embraced this work of what Christ has done and trusting yourself to God's work through Jesus. And others of you this morning may say that you want to make sure that you're not just living a life where only the barcode is changed, but where the insides are transformed too. And so as we prepare to come to the communion table this morning, that's what I'm going to invite you to focus on. And as you step forward and come to receive communion, I'm going to invite you to, to respond. And as you kneel at the altar, that your prayers would be focused on your life and what it looks like for you to respond to the life that God gives. Pray with me, please. Good Father, we give you thanks. For your great love that is shown in Christ Jesus. Lord, we cannot comprehend fully in our minds what you have done through Jesus. And yet, Lord, we come surrendering ourselves, longing to receive that gift. Because, Lord, we know on our own we can't do enough to right ourselves with you. And, Lord, we long to know the life that you alone can give. So help us in these moments surrender ourselves fully to you, both in the ways that we know how to do and in ways greater than we can imagine. Lord, help us push everything into the center of the table to say that we want what you want, 
more than what we want. We pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and all God's children said, Amen.